Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. Hello everyone, it's here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Pat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. Oh my God, you guys, read the email we got. This <laughs> well, is exciting. I'm just gonna read it. Read the email. That's read, weird. read the but email. No, it is exciting. Uh, it's very cool. We got an email from Christine from. And that's why we drink. And if you are not already listening to And That's Why We Drink, it is a paranormal slash true crime podcast. It's amazing. And you should absolutely be listening to it. And so, <laughs> oh, hey, guys, I love your podcast, Christine says. And we're like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> anyway, yeah, she said, uh, I've become thoroughly addicted. And that, uh, she, well, she said other nice things. Um, and they've been to a bunch of the same venues that we have been slash are going to and so uh we've we've been talking about venues no big deal us and christine (laughs) from and that's why we drink (laughs) they've played a lot of the same clubs that we are playing in our upcoming tour and uh we were before she reached out to us you and i were kind of joking about it geez you know christine and m the hosts of of and that's why we drink they're gonna think that we're following them around in a creepy manner (laughs) which i guess would be appropriate when you consider the context to both of our podcasts. That's true. Um, I'm going to wait a few emails. Like, I'm going to try to play it cool and then be like, oh my God, we should do it like a weekend podcast festival where we all get together and we do amazing things all together. And also there should be street corn because I love street sure. corn. Yeah. We've also determined that we all have a love for Donovan's music. So we're pretty much BFFs. <laughs> we're going to get like matching necklaces and sure. it's going to be a whole thing. It's going to be a whole thing. <laughs> Anyway, that was really nice of her to reach out to us. Incredible. Yeah, we appreciate that very much. Okay, I get my my computer shut itself off. Okay, now, all right, I'm back. Okay. I go first. Located on the intersection of uh, Cermak Road and De Plains Avenue in Forest Park, Illinois, is Woodlawn Cemetery. Uh Uh-huh. Now, when you walk in, 
When you first stroll into Woodlawn Cemetery... As I assume that you would do. Certainly you would stroll. If ever there's a place you should stroll, it's a cemetery. Right. One of the first things that you're going to see are five elephant statues. Pretty much life-size elephant statues. Five of them. Now, that doesn't mean there are elephants buried there. They are standing guard over the plot containing 750 grave sites known as Showman's Rest. Or... As some locals refer to it, the clown graveyard. Ooh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> you got the shivs, didn't okay. you? Okay. <laughs> All right. That sounds horrible. It's a clown graveyard, sweetie. Sure. Yeah. That's, um, we did get a message I noticed from someone who was like, hey, in our country, we don't picnic in cemeteries. Is that something that you guys do there? And I guess the answer really is no. Well, um, we do. But we do. <laughs> Anyway, we've never had a picnic at Woodlawn, and I would very much like to, uh, but now I'm questioning that. You would eat a hoagie at the Clown Graveyard? I don't I don't know. Yeah. I didn't know that it was there. It's there. Why? But why? Is it like a mass grave? Do they just huck them in? According to the Weekly View in Indianapolis, in the early pre-dawn hours of June 22nd, 1918, that was a Saturday, a 26-car Hagenbeck Wallace Circus Train, which included the engine, four sleeping cars, five stock cars, 15 flat cars, and a a caboose, were heading from uh, Illinois into Indiana. Now, you said it's a circus train. Does that mean that it's just owned by circus owner people who put their things on it? Or is it like a special train made for circus folk? Special train made for circus folk. Really? Back in those days, that was the preferred method of travel. Not all the trains carried the performers. Some had just uh, equipment Mm -hmm. and uh, some just took animals. Some a combination of all of uh, of the above. On this particular train, 400 performers were asleep in the rear cars of the train. The final four cars of the train. Now, the train had stopped... On the Michigan Central tracks near Ivanhoe, apparently they had a an overheated axle box. And if you've ever had one of those, you know how painful it can be. Very itchy. So they pull off to a siding to uh, let the axle box cool down and to do any necessary repairs. And the flagmen for the train went out and put flares along the track, which was a warning of danger. You know, this again, 1918. The safety precaution was somewhat uh, lacking and rudimentary. Now, even though the the, uh, circus train had been moved over to a siding and was waiting at that point, you know, in order for them to go, hey, yeah, move along, let's go. Right. It's like the the pit in a a race car event. That's exactly it. The circle thing. But the train was so long that a good portion of the rear of the train had not cleared the mainline tracks. Okay. I think I see where this is going, but yeah. that's okay. And of course, the flagmen had spread out flares and warnings, you know, along the track to alert any other train that, uh, hey, you know, you, there's a train on the tracks mm. here. Well, at just before four in the morning, a 21-car troop train was heading down the track. Now, this is 1918, of course, and World War II was in full swing, and World troop War trains. One. Yes, I'm sorry. World War One, mm-hmm. full swing. They uh, they were using trains to move troops around from base to base, and ultimately to New York and other ports that would then put them on ships and take them over to Europe to fight. Well, this train was empty, and it was traveling at 60 miles per hour. 
Like I said, at, at four in the morning, actually three fifty-six a.m. I'm sorry, it was empty. It was empty except for the engineer who was driving the train. Okay. Uh, his name was Alonzo K. Sargent. Hey, I have an uncle Alonzo. Different Alonzo, I'm hoping, because uh, this Alonzo had fallen asleep. Oh no! He never saw the flares. He never saw the danger on the tracks. Despite the warning signals, the lanterns and the flares that were blanketing the track leading up to the stalled train plowed into the circus train at 60 miles per hour. And because it was traveling at such a high rate of speed, it just kept going. And and the cars, like I said, the last four cars of the um, train were sleeping cars for the circus performers. And the force of the train telescoped those four sleeping cars into each other, one after another, after another, after another. The train finally came to a halt on top of the fourth car from the rear. The deafening sound of twisting metal and splintering wood. 127 people were injured and another 86 were killed, they believe, instantly. Wow. So when you say telescoped, you mean just like crumpled in on itself? Like just, if you take a telescope and yep. fold it down, okay. that's what happened. One oh. car into another, into another. Oh, gosh. And again, speculation was that uh, most of the 86 who perished died within the first 30 seconds of the wreck. It was pretty fast and unexpected. They were asleep. They just never woke up. Now, as if that's not nightmarish enough... Those who survived were trying to get out of this wreckage, and I've seen pictures of this. It's horrifying. You wouldn't know it was a train. It looks just like a huge pile of smoking debris. And the reason it was smoking when they took the picture is because the the circus train in, in those days had a gas lighting system as well as kerosene lanterns. That's how they saw what they were doing. Mm-hmm. So the train wreck happens, these kerosene lanterns and gas lamps ignite the wooden cars and the straw and things that were being carried from one city to another, and it became a blazing inferno. Clowns, bareback riders, trapeze performers, acrobats, many of these circus performers, veterans of the circus world, perished almost instantly. And others were suffocated or burned to death. Now, the uh, fire department, Gary, Indiana, was uh, they, they were not able to control the uh, the flames because where the crash took place, there were no fire hydrants. Sure. And the only water they had was the water that was in the steam locomotive. So they pretty much had to stand there and just watch it burn itself out. Oh, knowing that there are people inside. Yes. And... A lot of the circus performers who were not hurt, who, who did survive, were running around frantically trying to pull people out. Many had relatives and friends inside the wreck and had to be physically restrained from rushing back in. And yeah. I mean, that would be my first instinct if a family member was in there. And <sighs> hours after the uh, collision, they were still recovering bodies from the debris. Sure. One circus employee, his name was Joe Coyle. He was a clown, and he was seen on his knees uh, just sobbing over the remains of his wife and child pulled from 
from the wreckage. Now, as if a horrific circus train crash isn't enough, local residents had to kind of stir the pot a little bit and create more chaos by, by spreading rumors that lions and tigers and elephants and bears had been on the train and escaped into the woods and were eating people. Sure. Because the wreck wasn't bad enough. I don't know what is goes on in people's heads sometimes. I guess there were there were woods just south of the wreck, and so they said, "Yeah, they, uh, we saw bears and lions out there eating children." That was not true. Another report said that uh, one woman who was on the train and became demented because of what she had just witnessed ran from the train, evaded doctors, and disappeared into the woods. Again, not true. Right. But for a long time, there were stories that kids would tell about this crazy woman that was on the circus train who lived in the woods and killed people. Like a reaver. Exactly like a reaver. So the engineer, Alonzo K. Sargent, they arrested him that night. Oh, he, he survived. He survived. He was charged with numerous counts of manslaughter. Headlines of the local paper explained the tragedy in their in detailed sometimes colorful terms again we should do an old-timey news guy 60 heroes of the sawdust ring perish in flaming wreck as train cuts through cars that's all i can do it goes on to say somebody's blunder costs in killed and injured 189 casualties of wallace hagenback circus performers weakened by crash to die in flames families long known to the public as favorites are decimated or swept to eternity i'm sorry this is a headline this is all is one, enormous it's one long ass headline <sighs> now even though the engineer Alonzo K. Sargent uh, was found responsible by federal transportation officials because, you know, he fell asleep, literally fell asleep at the wheel. Mm -hmm. Engineer Sargent was acquitted. Not really sure how they uh, squared that up in their minds, but it doesn't say in any of the reports that I saw why they said, yeah, you know, you fell asleep. You, we all know you fell asleep. Your lack of diligence uh, caused the death of scores of people. All right, you little scamp, go on home now. Well, I mean, I think it also points to the fact that there needed to be better safety precautions than just making sure that a dude stays awake. 38 of the bodies were taken to Gary Undertaker's. 22 were taken to Hammond. Two more bodies were pulled from the wreckage days later. They were still pulling people out. Mm. And survivors gathered where the Showman's League of America had just recently selected a burial plot for members. They had just recently bought this land not far from the crash with the idea in mind that um, this would be a place where circus performers could be buried with honor. Now, you said this is the Showman's League? Yeah, Showman's League was started in 1913 by Buffalo Bill Cody. Oh. He was their first president, and it was a league that was designed to help retired circus people or show people, and part of the plan was to have a place where they could be buried oh, with wow. respect. There was a rumor generations of Illinois school children talked about this throughout classrooms all over the Midwest that five elephants had been killed in the train wreck. And that they, the elephants tried in vain to extinguish the burning uh, circus cars with trunks of water, which 
None of that was true, including... Well, they, the, they have to get the water from somewhere. Uh, right. They don't just generate water out of their trunks. Do people really think this? <laughs> well, these were school kids, you know, and it was back in 1913 when they were all stupid. <laughs> okay. So, no, that didn't happen. No, five elephants did not die in the train wreck. It is my understanding that the animals were on another train that was behind this train and uh, taking a different route, I guess, probably because they were being rooted around the accident. Right. So the statues of the elephants just uh, were used as a symbol for the circus, and they outline the site of a mass grave that contains all of the bodies of the Hagenbach-Wallace circus train accident. Wow. The services were held uh, less than a week after the train wreck. And as I mentioned, there were 86 people that died in the train accident. They dug one grave, one huge grave. It's, it was 35 by 24 by 5 feet deep. I saw a picture of it. It looks like they dug a foundation for a house. Wow. And then they just lined it with 86 coffins i know it's insensitive and completely inappropriate but you'd think that the number of clowns in that grave would have been more yeah which makes me wonder what if there was a zombie clown apocalypse would they all come tumbling out of the grave at the same time these are questions i have sure many of the victims in the wreck were unknown because a lot of them were uh temporary workers some of them hired just days or, or in some cases, hours oh. before this happened. Only a dozen headstones have names on them. Most of the markers just say unidentified male or unidentified female. So there are people who would have joined this circus, got on the train to go to whatever kind of event they were going to, and their families never heard from them again and they yeah. don't know why. Yeah. Oh, that's terrible. Some of the markers are very simple. One just said, smiley. Another, baldy. One, four horse driver. The flying wards, who were a uh, trapeze act, lost a member. There was a sister act who rode elephants and did aerial stunts. Mm -hmm. All of them were killed. Two mm -hmm. strong men died. But most of the victims, they, they just didn't know who they were. That is tragic. So right after the accident and the, uh, and the burial, many of the city's residents and shopkeepers rallied to the assistance of the surviving circus people. They gave them food and clothing. Mm -hmm. Other circuses like Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus loaned them equipment, train cars to move them to the next show that they were going to do. They only missed two shows after that that's amazing the show must go on i guess i love that idea though that that fellow circus folk were helping them out yeah. though it must have been really hard to get back on a train i would think so so even though there were no elephants buried in the cemetery they do have the elephant statues and for generations nearby residents say that at night they hear the trumpeting sounds of ghostly elephants wafting across the cemetery. Oh. Yes, this went on for decades. And of course, that, that kind of freaked a lot of people out until somebody pointed out that Brookfield Zoo was right on the other side of the cemetery. <laughs> and that kind of put an end to that. Sure. 
until 2012 when they removed the elephants from the zoo. Since 2012, there have been no elephants in that zoo. And people are still hearing elephants at night coming from the cemetery. Oh, there was also a guy, I saw this on Reddit, he lives in that area. He said he was walking along, he walks along Madison Avenue, and he, when he's near the cemetery, and he's on his phone, oftentimes whispering will come in over his phone, and he can't understand what they're saying, but it's just kind of like, you know, like that kind of a thing, and the person he's talking to never hears it. That's weird. And then one day, he was at home, and his sister called him, and he heard the, you know, but he's at home and he said, where are you right now? And she said, I'm, I'm walking by the uh, cemetery. Oh, that's weird. So it seems to be him, not yeah. the. Yeah. Oh. And she did not hear it. That's interesting. Side note, I was talking to my mom the other day when I was driving and all of a sudden she cut out and I heard a dude's voice and it was all like, oh, yeah, I'm going to be over there about three. And then it was my mom again. Whoa, and I was like, yeah. oh, that sucks. <laughs> I don't know what just happened, but I did not care for it. <laughs> there have been a number of paranormal exploration groups that have gone to the area and conducted EVP sessions. Uh, they claim that they have picked up animal noises and circus music. Mm -hmm. Could it be? Could it be? Hey, I simply report. You decide. Sure. I just think that would be really interesting. Like... <sighs> <laughs> so the history of the train wreck of course is horrific it's terrible it's it's tragic and sad but some good did come out of it you mentioned this briefly earlier the accident led to regulations ma mandating sleep for train crews as well as putting in place many preventative safety measures that uh were designed to help prevent this sort of thing from happening in the future. And maybe that's why he was acquitted. Maybe that's why the engineer was acquitted is because maybe he hadn't had the opportunity to sleep for an ex yeah. extreme amount of time. And, you know, train had to be here or there at a certain time. And, you know, it's like truck drivers. You, when you're a long haul truck driver, there have to be regulations and making sure that you're getting the sleep that you need because you are, even though uh, amazing and a treat, uh, in need of sleep, just like a normal human person. The area of Woodlawn Cemetery known as Showman's Rest is still being used today for burials of circus showmen. Wow. Although probably it's slowing down a little bit. Yeah, well. <laughs> so the clown graveyard, you want to go and have a picnic there with me? Well, I mean, not, I'm going to, after just having heard that story, I'm going to say no. Um, probably no. Um, but after the the immediate feelings of tragedy have left me, yeah, okay. Okay, good. Yeah. And now, that thing in the middle. And now, bizarre modern-day headlines, but read in old-timey newsreel voices. Best man left bleeding after hit in head by flying dildo. Elderly woman accused of training her 65 cats to steal from neighbors. Easter world record. Man sticks nine cream eggs up his bum. Grand banned from Chinese buffet for shitting in the seaweed. Police receive report of a newborn infant found in trash can. Upon further investigation, officers discovered it was a burrito. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids. 
and they live about 3,000 miles away. And my daughter is expecting a child, and she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life, Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura Frames and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code Oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com and use code Oddities at checkout, and you will save. Thanks, Aura Frames, for bringing my family a little bit closer. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? <sighs> Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parents and kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. You're listening to The Box of Oddities. Nothing better to do. All right, let's get right to it. What you got for me? Oh, okay. What you got for me? Mm. Well, you might be asking yourself, so when did Europeans stop consuming dead people body parts as medicine? Well, it looks like the practice dwindled in the 18th century. Oh. So for several hundred years, peaking around the 16th and 17th centuries, many Europeans, including royalty, priests, scientists, routinely consumed human remains as part of a medical treatment. Are you speaking of mummy powder? Part of it is That's, mummy powder. Okay. Part of it. Okay. It goes even further than that. Oh, for sure, Z's. 
human bones, blood, fat, you know, it's all medicine. (laughs) Now, I got a lot of this from uh, Smithsonian Magazine, and they reference Louise Noble's book, uh, Medicinal Cannibalism in Early Modern Literature and Culture. (laughs) My God. And another book by Richard Sugg of England's University of Durham called Mummies, Cannibals and Vampires, The History of Corpse Medicine from the Renaissance to the Victorians. So the the human bits that were used for medicinal purposes came from lots of places and were used for lots of things. Uh, Early on, though, it really did start with the Egyptian mummy powder. Uh, It was very popular. Europeans' demand for mummies actually grew significantly in the 15th century when uh, merchants began plundering tombs in Egypt to bring back mummies to apothecaries. In the late 16th century, surgeon Ambrose Paré claimed it was the, quote, very first and last medicine of almost all our practitioners against bruising. So if you've <laughs> get a bruise, got a need to treat a bruise, eat a dead guy. Mm-hmm. By the 18th century, taken in tinctures for bleeding or used in plasters against venomous bites or joint pain, mummy powder was so popular that there was actually becoming a real demand for fake mummies. And people were creating these fake mummies and selling them on the black market. Um, They were mummies of either poor people that had died that they, quote unquote, mummified, animals, criminals, it didn't matter. Were these mummies pre-ground up? In other words, could they have gone to an apothecary and said, hey, here's uh, some ground up mummy and it could be sawdust? Oh, um, yeah, I don't know. Um, what I think what they were asking for is actual mummies. I see. So that the apothecaries could create the mummy powder themselves. Uh, it was said to be very good for internal bleeding. Hence the, uh, the bruising cure. Right. Yes, exactly. In many instances, we'll see a theme that the thing that you're consuming is to heal a similar thing on your body that's broken. So mummy's powder isn't the best example of this, but in some cases, if you have a head wound, you might want to ingest some ground up skull. Hmm. See, like cures like. Well, I guess in the 1500s anyway, that would make some sense from their perspective, their thought process. Hmm. And that would make sense. Right. You have an injury here. We'll give you some more of that from a dead guy. When I was a young person, I had a weird idea about uh, diet. I believed that I could eat anything that I wanted as long as I ate one thing that was like that that was good for me. Why, why am I just hearing about this now? So I thought that if I wanted to eat like a ton of Szechuan chicken, that's fine. I can eat all that I want as long as I eat the same amount of grilled chicken breast. <laughs> so it would counterbalance it. Yes, exactly. Interesting. If I wanted to eat a bunch of gummy fruits, it's fine. I eat all the, the fruit snacks I, I can jam into my face at the same time, which is, by the way, the best way to consume fruit snacks. Of course. As long as I ate, 
you know, an equal amount of apple or pear so, or whatever. Are you, are you comparing them by weight or by piece or? Uh, mass. By mass. So like if I hold a handful of gummy fruits, that's the same amount of apple slices that I should eat. Okay. And that would maintain a healthy diet. And how'd that work? Oh, I don't know. I was drunk most of the time. <laughs> so human fat is also a valued remedy about this period. It was rubbed on skin to ease pains of gout. It was taken internally in powdered form. Uh, That also helped with bruising and bleeding. German doctors, for instance, would prescribe bandages soaked in fat to wrap around wounds. Good Lord. Mm. Smelled lovely, I'll bet. I bet. And wasn't at all flammable. No. You're a wick right now, (laughs) sir. Yes, but my bruising's fading. Yes, it is. So nice. In... 1694 Paris, you could buy fat made from people at the drugstore. Wait, they made the fat out of people who worked at the drugstore? No, but you could buy the fat at the drugstore. But it was a lot more plentiful uh, if you went straight to the executioner. (laughs) Well, sure, of course. And in some places... It's like buying wholesale. The executioner was a healer Mm -hmm. because he had access to all these body bits right so first you're cutting up the middleman mm-hmm. and then you're cutting out the middleman nice luck thanks that was really well done I appreciate yeah. that um you could also get the good stuff from the executioner blood for instance mm-hmm. that of course you get the vitality from other people's spirits and bodies and such through their blood so you drinking it's a great idea says right in the bible that uh life is in the blood and the fresher the better oh yeah it's like any beverage some proposed taking it from the living but that doesn't appear to have been a real common practice uh fresh though and that requirement made it challenging to acquire this again is where those executioners come into play uh the poor who couldn't always afford the processed compounds sold in the local drugstores they could gain the benefits of blood and drinking it by standing at the scaffold. With their mouth open underneath the head basket? No. They'd bring cups. And God they would. God, no, they didn't. Pay a small amount for a cup of the still warm blood of the condemned. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. So public executions were for entertainment, yes. They were to shame the uh, wrongdoer and also... Provide concessions? Yep. Oh, my God. It was real multi-purpose. Oh, my God. People would line up with their little cups? Little cups. Yeah. Yeah. We've got a silver cup that was passed down from your family, Mm -hmm. and I'm pretty sure it was once filled with dead guy blood. (laughs) Well, I don't know for a fact that any of my ancestors drank blood. Mm Mm-hmm. It's possible. Sure. Because I've got some real colorful people in my background. Sure. And you're, you know, you have a lot of really old people in your family who look real, real nice. Yeah. So they're probably stealing the vitality of the youth (laughs) through drinking their blood. Well, that side of the family all live to be 95 to 100. Mm. Easy. Now, for those who enjoy their blood cooked, (laughs) a 1679 recipe from an apothecary described how to make it into a nice marmalade. And this is according to Lapham's Quarterly. The first step was to take the blood from the person of warm, moist temperament, such as those of a blotchy red complexion, 
and rather plump of build. The next step was to let it dry into a sticky mass. After that, place it upon a flat, smooth table of soft wood and cut it into thin slices, allowing its watery part to drip away. When it is no longer dripping, place it on a stove on the same table and stir it into a batter with a knife. When it is absolutely dry, place it immediately into a warm bronze mortar and pound it, forcing it through a sieve of finest silk. When it has all been sieved, seal it into a glass jar, renew it in the spring of every year. And that's how you get a nice base. A blood marmalade. Yeah. So you get the benefits of it without having to like go to the public square for the hanging every day well that's true plus homemade blood marmalade is so much better than store-bought absolutely so this wasn't new right i mean romans would allegedly drink the blood of gladiators that were killed in battle to absorb their vitality sure um of course it seems a little counterproductive to drink the blood of the ones that lost but 15th century philosopher Marsilio Ficino suggested drinking blood from the arm of a young person. So he was into like, let's just get it from the source. Sure. We're not going to wait. We're just going to take it from the arm. Get it right from that young person's arm. And I'm guessing without the permission of the young person. Well, you know, it's either that or wall them up with an old nun. Skulls were another commodity highly prized for their healing powder. Oh. Power. The 17th century physician John French offered at least two recipes for distilling skulls into spirits, which could help with anything from uh, gout to falling sickness, stomach troubles, epilepsy. If only we still had those recipes. <laughs> now, English King Charles II was an enthusiastic chemist. He had his own laboratory, and he reportedly paid $6,000 to buy a recipe for distilled powdered skull, which then became known as the King's Drops. The remedy was very popular for a lot of complaints. It seemed to have most often been mixed in with wine or chocolate. Hmm. Also, it should be noted that it wasn't just the skulls, but like... Um, If you had a skull in the forest and, um, you know, because skulls, forest, whatever. That's where you keep them. Yeah. Um, And moss grew on that skull. That moss was highly prized. Really? That would be used for lots of meds. P.S. I heard that moss was a family member of pineapple. Is that true? That is the first time I've heard that. Well, I'm really interested to learn more about that, but I... We'll need to write it down because I will never remember that I just read that. Okay. Um, so not everyone was into this practice and there were critics, but the hypocrisy in the way cannibalism was viewed is really shocking. So there were two groups that were largely demonized for their cannibalistic behaviors. One, Native Americans. The idea had started to move around that the new world contained these barbaric cannibals that they were not trustworthy they were savages they were savages and there are negative stereotypes about them that these people thought were justified because of this cannibalistic activity um when in fact there were like 
three tribes, three or four tribes that had some ritualistic cannibalism. Uh, Aztec warriors were said to eat a strip of flesh from the enemies that they had slain in combat. The Karankawa tribe of Southeast Texas was said to practice ritualistic cannibalism to defeated enemies. Um, there were a few Amazonian tribes who practiced cannibalism like at funerals. So family and friends would take a piece of their loved ones. To absorb to, the, yeah. Yeah, to okay. keep them with them. Sure. Um, and I mean, but they, in the United States alone, there were like 600 tribes of Native Americans. And I mean, there are maybe two references to hmm. cannibalism ever in the state. Hence, I mean, you know, they all were cannibals. Right, right, yeah. Um, the other group demonized uh, highly were Catholics. Okay. Because Protestants said that because of their belief in transubstantiation, the mm-hmm. the, the whole body of Christ thing, right. uh, the bread and the wine taken during the Holy Communion were, through God's power, changed into the body and blood of Christ. They viewed that as being cannibalistic and disgusting. Meanwhile, they're eating skull powder. <laughs> It seems really strange that you can point to a family of faith, um, you know, nomin on a cracker and say, oh, that's terrible. Uh, and at the same time, you are slathering your blood marmalade onto toast. <laughs> Nothing brings an English muffin alive like blood marmalade. So the, the hypocrisy seems to be rooted in the difference is the Europeans consuming these body parts, the skull, the blood the fats, they didn't know where these body parts came from. The Egyptian mummies were strangers to them, the fats they bought from the local drugstore. Sure. But the Native Americans or uh, the Catholics, they knew the where this was coming from, and that makes it gross. If I've said it once, I've said it a hundred times, you have to know where your food comes from. Yeah. Now, if anything, I would say that it's the other way around that makes it terrible. That if you don't know where your powdered skull is coming from, that's the problem. <laughs> anyway, so like I said, it did peter out uh, right around the time that start people started using forks. So human flesh and body parts was basically a finger food. <laughs> <laughs> Noise. Fascinating. There are a couple of references. I would absolutely suggest that Smithsonian Magazine article was great. There is uh, Lapsum's Quarterly, A Brief History of Cannibalism as Medicine. And those books I will absolutely add onto our Goodreads page. There was also an article I read some time ago about uh, rumors that during uh, harsh French winters, uh, there were those that had ground their family's bones into uh, flour to make bread. Uh, but God. that is not substantiated. It's probably true, though. Well, I just think I think it's interesting when you look at the different reasons that it's been done in history. Like there are the ritualistic reasons. There are reasons why people have eaten humans for need. Mm-hmm. You know, when mm-hmm. you're starving, you're, you're going to gnaw on a femur. Um, and then there are just the... Um, like the fanciful reasons. I think this makes me stronger. <laughs> In fact, we got an email message just recently. Somebody was talking about the uh, Salvador Dali episode that we did uh, a number of episodes ago mm-hmm. and added some information that we didn't report. And, and I haven't substantiated, but I find it very interesting. Allegedly, part of Salvador Dali's and Gala's lovemaking occasionally involved cannibalism. 
Well, you know, I've also heard that they never made love. So, well, maybe their form of making love was just eating a neighbor. It could be. I don't. It's performance art. Who are we? We are not fit to judge his work. No one is. Tickets are going fast to the Box of Oddities shows. Our mini Halloween tour happening uh, starting on the 16th of October in San Francisco at Cobb's Comedy Nightclub. Pause the game. It's 100 days to Halloween. There's a handful of VIP tickets left there. Your sister and brother-in-law are coming to San Francisco, which is going to be amazing. I'm super excited, and it brings a whole other element to the show. It's one thing to fail in front of strangers. (laughs) It's another entire level of humiliation to fail in front of loved ones. (laughs) October 27th, we'll be in Boston at uh, Laugh Boston. Uh, Still a few tickets left there. October 29th, Charlotte, North Carolina at Comedy Zone. A few tickets left at that location. And then October 30th, Zany's Comedy Nightclub Nashville. VIPs are sold out. General admission tickets are all that are available at this point. You can find all of your ticket purchasing options at theboxofoddities.com. Oh, we still have yet to determine if we're going to be allowed to dress up at the venues. But we will, I promise, we'll figure it out. Yeah, we'll let you know as soon as we can get some confirmation. The Box of Oddities will excrete another episode on your phone this coming Monday. We look forward to seeing you then. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the Box of Oddities belongs to you. Its fate is in your hands. The Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com On Facebook at Facebook.com slash Box of Oddities Podcast. On Twitter at Box of Oddities. And Instagram at Box of Oddities Podcast. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved. but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlwood, your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts.